Hello, and welcome to another installment of The Weird Chronicles. Each episode, we bring you tales of action and adventure from Malifaux and the other side. On today's episode, we get a glimpse into the personal views of a private investigator, James McCoy, hired by the Guild to look into a brutal murder. There is much that Mr. McCoy does not understand about Malifaux, but as we shall see, he is an astute observer of human nature. I hope you enjoy Dear Kristen. Dear Kristen, by Nicholas Volker. Dearest Kristen, I am writing to you in hopes that my words find you well. You and our daughter are constantly in my thoughts, and a day doesn't go by that I don't pine for your touch and bemoan the circumstances that separate us. Though the distance that separates us is a trial for me, I am thankful that you are not here to witness this place. The birth of Madeline was more of a blessing than I could have ever realised. That her birth prevented you from joining me in this nightmare city, I will forever be indebted to her. Enclosed in this envelope, I hope you find nine hundred dollars, and that it buys you and our daughter the comforts that you deserve. Here in Malifaux, the comforts are sparse, though I haven't much to complain about. Those finding employ with the Guild enjoy much more habitable lodging than those that must finance themselves. There is a baker just down the road from me who makes a quite edible cinnamon bread. I must be one of his more frequent customers, because he is always stacking additional sweets into my sack, free of charge. I may be a plumper man when you see me next. If I stay within the neighbourhoods where paving stones comprise the streets, I can almost convince myself that this is a proper city. Unfortunately, my investigations take me far outside this cloistered space to witness the true reality of this place. This truly is the frontier. No matter that the gargoyles hanging over the heart of the city might try to convince me of civilization. I apologize in advance for what I'm about to write. If your constitution is lacking, then I invite you to stop reading. Now. For my sanity, however, I am compelled to write, for I have no other confidant in which to entrust my private horrors. As you know, the Guild contracted my services to investigate the murders of four of their officers. Between the wire message and the ride by rail, it was a full 48 hours after the crime that I arrived. The crime scene had not been touched in that time, and natural biology had taken place on the victims, filling the room with the noxious smell of decay and a swarm of unidentifiable insects. It was difficult to identify how many victims succumbed in the room, as their various bits were strewn haphazardly about in piles of assorted viscera. The violence that took place there was beyond anything I was capable of imagining. Should I be able to strike that scene from my memory, I would be a very lucky man. I am sceptical, however, that I would ever be able to forget such a carnal image. I am fortunate that I was not required to endure that room long. A brief search uncovered a pile of documents which I discovered to be a mining contract with the local union and an agenda for contract negotiations. There were some curious marks raked into the floorboards here and there, and my initial instinct was that some rampaging beast had ambushed these men in their offices. With no signs of forced entry, though, I am forced to consider such a gruesome event was the result of a labour dispute gone badly. 
in those portions of the documents which were not stained with blood, I was able to extract the name of Philip Knowles. By the description of the agenda, it was apparent that Mr. Knowles was expected to be present at the negotiations, that he survived his testament that he did not attend. I found Mr. Knowles to be an incredibly nervous and paranoid individual. That he served as a deputy for the Guild was a distressing thought. The story he told me convinced me he came about his paranoia by good reason. I do not pity the man, consumed in fear as he is. His cowardice and more his cruelty have earned him the shadows that haunt him. His tale concerns another, Mr. Howard Langston. Mr. Langston was foreman of the Delta 7 mining site, one of the most vigorously mined veins in that area. According to Mr. Knowles, production at the Delta 7 site had been in continuous decline for several months. He and his associates were dispatched to the site in order to discern the cause of these delays. My particular expertise lay far outside the concerns of minerals and soils and excavation, and I don't pretend to understand the situation Mr. Langston explained to Mr. Knowles and his associates. Evidently, there was a significant fracture within the earth that further excavation threatened to upset. The result, should the fracture move, would be a cave-in and potential loss of life. In an effort to prevent such an accident, production was slowed so that additional reinforcements might be built into the shaft to safeguard the miners working there. Mr. Knowles's associates were not pleased by this explanation and pressed that production resume at full capacity, regardless of any perceived danger. That Mr. Langston was a member of the labor class precluded any kind of intelligent opinion in their eyes. Further, they felt that the life insurance policy provided by the union contract was more than enough compensation for any resulting accident. Langston listened quietly. Knowles described an eerie stoicism on his face even as he and his associates began to shout and threaten the man. Langston endured these threats silently and without reaction. When the guild officials, tired of their tirade, Langston calmly told them that he needed to return to work and that he wished that they have a pleasant day. He then turned his back on them and started back toward the worksite. Knowles and his associates numbered five men. The odds of five against one is enough to put bravery into almost anyone. Langston was a large man, fully six and a half feet tall and close to 300 pounds of muscle, refined by hard labor in the mines. It would take those kinds of odds to even consider starting a scuffle with the man. When one of the guild men struck Langston across the back with a loose rail timber, it burst into splinters across his granite shoulders, barely phasing the even-tempered man. Langston proved that those odds were not sufficient and that every man has a limit to what he will endure. Knowles described the scene in intricate detail. How Langston spun with a quick motion and caught his attacker by the throat. How one blow from his knotted fist struck the guild man unconscious and how he crumpled to the ground like a sack of potatoes. Two other men rushed the toughened miner, and blows rained down on his head and shoulders. For their efforts, one man had both of his arms broken, the hand crushed in Langston's grip. The other received a broken leg as he was hoisted off the ground and thrown against a nearby mining car. Knowles described no malice in the man's counterattack, just fierce assurance that such transgressions would not be tolerated. He was astounded by Langston's strength and the way he tossed the men aside like ragdolls he'd become bored with. Knowles' superior officer, a man by the name of Doolan, escalated the encounter. 
he drew his firearm and shot Langston in the hip. As strong as the man was, the large caliber weapon destroyed the joint above his leg and he fell to the ground. Eager to avenge their injuries, all five men, yes, Knowles admitted he joined in, began to brutally club and beat Langston with the butts of their guns and a couple axe handles they had found at the site. By Knowles' description, there wasn't a part of Langston's body that wasn't purple and broken. His blood bubbled out of the wound in his hip, and the thirsty ground drank it up. Still, the guild goons were not satisfied. With all the terrible things I have seen in this line of work, I cannot understand the wickedness men are capable of. This place, this city, it seems to nurture that wickedness. It's as if murder is in the air and infects the men who live here, filling them with a lust for his neighbor's blood. In all the world, there is no place more in need of law than Malifaux, law to keep men civil and decent and safe. But here, the guild is no law. These men, they dragged Langston's unconscious body through the dirt and laid him across the railroad tracks. They left him to die. After hearing that from Knowles, I'm certain you can understand my surprise when he told me that Langston still lived. Not only that, but the man had returned to his duties as foreman of the Delta 7 site. This is only two weeks after the events Knowles related to me. To me, it seemed that Knowles' paranoia had inspired some unreasonable dread that the man he'd wronged would be strong enough or healthy enough to exact vengeance. So it was that Knowles' fear was justified and, despite my skepticism, astoundingly correct. It is a short ride by rail from the city centre to the derelict station that serves the Delta 7 site. I used the time aboard the train to review my notes and the interview with Knowles that I had transcribed, I found myself rereading the man's description of the brutal beating he had participated in, my mind struggling with an image of a person who might have sustained such injuries. With such a brief period to recover, the man must still be dressed in bandages and casts and delirious with drugs to kill his pains. Of course, the train does not pull right up to the mouth of the mine shaft, and it was a long walk before I started to see signs of the operation. There was a beaten path where wagons travelled, carrying the loads of precious soul stones that were the miner's bounty. Eventually, I could see movement around the site and a large plume of black smoke that issued from some piece of mechanical equipment. It was this piece of equipment that kept my eye as I continued onwards toward the site. It moved back and forth along a set of tracks, pushing carts from the mine into the wagons to be unloaded. It wasn't dependent on the tracks as it would depart from them at short intervals, attending to other chores I couldn't decipher from my distant vantage. I was confused by its manner. I was not familiar with a machine that moved so organically. So curious was I in regards to the machine that when I finally arrived at the site, I asked the workers there about it immediately, instead of inquiring into Langston's whereabouts. To my surprise, the gentleman who indulged my question responded simply, Oh, that's Hank. I didn't understand the response, but with further questions, the worker explained that Howard, Hank, Langston, and the machine were one and the same. I still didn't understand even after several questions, and took the man to mean that Langston was operating the machine in question. Another gentleman appeared, one dressed finely in a long coat and spectacles. I would later discover the man is Dr. Ramos, an influential, if roguish, industrialist, he had apparently overheard my inquiry, and putting his arm over my shoulder, he led me away from the group of workers I had been speaking to. 
The man inquired conversationally into my business at the mining site, and seemed quite interested when I told him I was investigating a murder. He inquired further, and I told him that I was looking for a man known as Hank Langston. I was distracted by my conversation with Ramos, and had temporarily put aside my curiosity into the strange mechanical device, until I heard the shrill whistle of steam being vented. Lifting my eyes, I saw the most amazing and terrifying thing I'd ever witnessed. During our conversation, we had moved closer to the machine, so that when I looked upon it again, I was only 200 metres or so from it. Just as the worker had said, the machine was Hank, or at least part of it was. The mechanical portion of the creature, and I call it a creature because it was no simple machine, and if it were once a man, it was no longer, had the manner of a spider, going about on four large and articulated legs. Those legs moved with a careful and measured grace, navigating the job site much as a spider might navigate its web. Where the spider's body would be, however, there was the torso of a man instead. A muscled stomach transitioned abruptly out of the mechanical conveyance that served surrogate for its legs. It was a solid trunk for broad shoulders and enormous arms. As I marveled at the creature, Ramos nonchalantly called out to it, calling it Hank. The creature turned its stoic eyes towards us, and never have I seen such a hard-nosed face. It was only at that point that I finally conceded the creature's identity to be Langston. The expression on the creature's face was just as Knowles had described it, personifying an even-tempered demeanour. It rose up on its great steel legs and effortlessly strode toward us. The creature towered over us, and behind it I could hear its steam engine bubbling quietly and another whistle of steam. Ramos asked for Hank to give a report on the day's productivity, and Hank instantly began to list a detailed account of how many cars had been loaded and when. My attention couldn't be bothered with such mundane details when such an awe-inspiring sight stood before me. The creature was gigantic and perched upon its huge spidery legs. It was much taller than the six-foot-six that Hank reportedly stood before his accident. Those legs were a marvel in the way they moved and were articulated by steam-driven pistons. Their power was obvious. As Hank reported the sight's happenings, he idly prodded at a stone with his pointed talon, splitting it effortlessly and scratching a mark into the dry earth. That mark triggered a realization, and it must have shown on my face because Ramos quickly dismissed Hank and drew me away from where the giant was working. That mark Hank left in the earth was the same mark raked into the floorboards of the guild offices. Hank was there. He killed those men. In that moment, I knew that to be fact. I'm certain that you had come to the same conclusion, my dear Kristen. Ramos coldly explained the events of weeks prior, but his account was redundant. I knew what had happened. There was silence between us for several moments, each of us waiting for what must happen next. It was clear to me that Ramos intended to convince me to conceal my findings, and just as confident as I was in his intentions, I was dedicated in completing my duty. It was then that we heard a sound, and we turned to see that Hank had called a man back from the mine. This man jogged the short distance across the worksite, and Hank reached out with his iron claw to hand the man a hard hat. Hank gave the worker a brief warning about working without his safety gear and sent him back off. This creature, this man, 
had suffered an incredible trauma, became this amazing monster but was still capable of humanity. He retained the trust and respect of his fellow laborers. Ramos explained to me greater crimes perpetrated by the guild, crimes he claimed that necessitated violence such as that I had investigated. He went on to detail his conviction that the minerals mined here were the right of the laborers who mined it, and not of the corrupt interests of the guild. He didn't need to explain any further. Nothing he had to say had any sway over my sense of justice. Justice serves to protect the innocent. That has always been my creed. Ramos is no innocent. Not in the least. The guild, too, has proven its guilt through the testimony of one of its own. No, neither side of this conflict is innocent. But I believe there was a time when Hank was. Hank suffered and I wouldn't be the instrument of his further grief. An instrument of the guild which had provoked his descent into Ramos's own brand of organized crime and corruption. Nevertheless, Ramos wouldn't let me leave without accepting his generous gift of $900. I send that ahead to you and hope that it reaches you and our daughter safely. I will be delayed a few more days as I give my report before the Governor-General. Despite the mire of politics here, there was nothing sinister about those men's deaths. An unexpected attack by a wild animal. That's an act of God. Yours forever, James McCoy. That's it for another episode of The Weird Chronicles. Join us next time for more tales of action and adventure.